0: Um, Yeah, my name is Pastor Nick. Uh, A really warm welcome to all of you. Uh, And to those of you who are new today, uh, just a very warm welcome. I've met a few new people today. Should we just give a round of applause to some of our new guests? Really nice to have you with us. Thank you so, so much. Um, We find ourselves in part two of a series on the book of Philippians, which is a letter uh, to a group of Christians at a town called Philippi uh, that Paul wrote to in around about AD 62. Uh, Greg introduced us on that last week with a great message to get us going. Um, And I want to start this morning by asking you to imagine a situation with me. Now, I'm hoping that this is something that doesn't happen, but we probably can't rule it out fully. Uh, Imagine that one day the police come and I get arrested, and I go into Winston Green Prison, just down the road from here, and I go in there for a few months because of my Christian faith, and because of my role as a pastor here in the city. Now, let me just be clear in helping you imagine this, uh, this imagined scenario. I've done nothing wrong, okay, um, but for some reason, maybe there are certain secular authorities that maybe want to make a point, uh, and they want to make an example of me, and so I find myself in jail, and so there I am in jail awaiting a release date, okay? Um, And the rest of the BCC team are running the church as admirably as they always do. Uh, The speakers that we have developed over the last couple of years and also the elders are helping to preach on a Sunday uh, and I hope that you're all praying for me to be kind of comforted and strengthened in the Lord and to get out soon and that everything will be okay. I mean, I'm hoping that you'd pray that. And then after a few months, um, one of you gets in touch with my MP, Shabana Mahmood, and uh, you manage to arrange a visit to me in the prison, okay? Uh, And then we have half an hour together, you know, through that kind of glass window where you kind of pick up the the phone and you have a chat through the window. uh, And there's a few of you on the other side of the glass and I'm on the inside and you're on the outside. And uh, you ask me if there's anything that will be helpful for me, anything at all that I would like BCC, uh, the church, to do for me. And then I say this in response to that, to that question. I say this, make my joy complete. That's a pretty odd response, actually, isn't it? You're perhaps, perhaps you visited me in prison, and you were hoping I might say, "Books, uh, you know, maybe an extra blanket, uh, my, my prayer journal would be great, chocolate is always welcome, you know, that kind of thing." Um, and so, you as visitors might ask me in response, "Oh, we weren't really necessarily thinking you might say that. How can we complete your joy? And in what way might it be lacking so far?" And then I might reply, "This." Get along so well together and be so like Jesus that you shine like stars to the rest of the world. Uh, Now, at the moment, you're not quite at that level, but I'd really love it if you tried your very, very best with Jesus' help to get there. That's what I would say in response. And that scenario that you've just imagined with me right there is the essence of Philippians chapter 2. That's it. That's the essence of what's going on here. Paul writes Philippians 2 to encourage the church at Philippi from his prison cell to argue and grumble a little bit less and to put others first a little bit more. That's what he's doing. And every pastor in the world wants to see their church getting along so well together that it shines Jesus brightly outwards to everyone in the world that's looking. That's what they want. That's what I want. That's what I hope for for BCC, that we are like a shining jewel in the city of Birmingham. Now, every parent wants their kids to get along, don't they? Uh, any parents in here just raise your hand if you've one or two parents i'm sure there's a few a few of you yeah now you want your kids to get along don't you and uh, uh and also if you put your hand up if you've ever had brothers and sisters uh, you know if you any of you got brothers and sisters in the room lots and lots of us have uh, i'm sure there will have been days where your mum or your dad took you to one side and said will you just get along have you ever had that come on a guilty faces in the room, Uh, yes, And, and what they did was they just wanted you to stop arguing and fighting Uh, So I was chatting through Philippians 2 last night with Chloe, and uh, she gave me her permission to share this story from from her journey, which was when she was four and uh, her older sister Emma was five, and uh, they were due to go to a kind of a bit of a posh party in the village hall, uh, and so they got their best party frocks on, it was like green dresses with white polka dots, and it was very important and very smart, and they were feeling very special and very excited, but unfortunately there was a level of arguing and bickering that started in the house, as I understand. And the story and then it carried on in the car and got worse. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat in, you know, when you've been small and you've sat in a car and you've not quite got on with the person next to you who's also small and you've kind of done that elbow thing. Have you ever done that? Where you're supposed to be sharing seats and you've gone like that and then you know that the other person's felt it and then they've done it harder back to you and then it gets like real pressure and you're like doing, you know, like elbow kind of pushing and, uh, and fighting in the back and you're trying to do this when your parent is like looking ahead at the road and not focused on you uh, and you're trying to get away with this sort of subtle fight that's going on Um, but anyway this went on and got worse and worse and worse and there was kind of shouting in the back I think and then they arrived at the village hall their dad turns to them and announces to them that they would not be going to the party and that they would be going straight back home again because they did not deserve a party after their behavior Ooh, tough dad, tough dad. So he turns the car right round and he drives all the way home and the girls are sobbing. They're crying their eyes out. They're really, really upset at not being allowed to go to this party. Now, once they've accepted their punishment, And agreed to get along back at home, Dad then says, well, hey, why don't we go and see if we can catch the second half of the party, but you need to come along in a very different mindset. Um, And so they jump in the car, and of course, they're they're as good as gold (laughs) on the way there. There's not even a peep out of them all the way there, and they catch the second half of the party, and they ended up having a good time. And so lesson learned about, hey, you need to behave in order to receive the good things of your life. You know, sometimes when our kids come to us and ask what we'd like, all we want to say back to them is, get along and make my joy complete, don't we? So a change of mind is needed. And Paul is writing to us in the hope, he's writing to the Philippians and by extension to us, in the hope that we will change our minds too. And he opens the letter uh, by making some appeals to the followers of Jesus in that church by saying, he opens a few statements. He says, have you ever been encouraged by Jesus? Uh, Have you ever felt the consolation of someone showing you some love? Have you ever felt connected with the Holy Spirit? Have you ever received affection or mercy? If so, if that applies to you, says Paul, then think hard about how you yourselves or we ourselves can be the kind of person who create those sorts of good things for other people by being less grasping and less egotistical and a bit more humble and a bit more servant-hearted. That's what he's essentially saying. His logic goes, if you Philippian Christians can improve in these things, then my joy will be completed, even while I'm sitting in prison, absent from you, and praying for you, and thinking about you, and writing to you. Now, it's quite interesting to me that Paul sits there in prison and he looks around and uh, he's not able to see too many people who are genuinely interested in serving others. He's struggling to find people, but he then does tell them, and we heard Shagan read that for us, he then tells them of two specific and notable exceptions. He says uh, he says these two names, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He writes in Philippians 2, uh, verses 19 to 21, he writes there, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that, uh, that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So he's looking around and saying, well, who can I send? And who's got a good mindset about being you know, self-sacrificial and laying down their own agenda? And he can only find, really, Timothy in Epaphroditus. So he credits Timothy with being genuinely and authentically concerned for others. And then he moves on to describe Epaphroditus, another kind of fellow Christian. uh, And he says he's a brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, a minister. And he credits him with having come even close to death uh, for the cause of Jesus. So these two guys are highly rated by Paul and he picks them out as really great examples. And what Paul is trying to say is, we too need to be great examples to the world. We do. We need to be examples of selfless sacrifice and servant-hearted helpfulness. And really the big theme of Philippians chapter 2 is that we're to stand out in a really bright way and be very different from the world by putting others ahead of ourselves and being kind to each other and laying down self. We're not to let personal ambition or empty conceits get the upper hand in our lives. And I think we've all met those kind of people who are a bit like that, haven't we? When the world notices us laying down self and favoring others, uh, it's very striking to them. Uh, let me share a little story with you that uh, happened recently in our in our team. Uh, we had some fire extinguisher training. Uh, so a company came in and uh, they put the fire the different kinds of fire extinguishers you can use out on the terrace just out there. And uh, so there was powder, there was CO2, there was foam, of course there was water as well. And the guy gave us a talk on how you tackle different kinds of fire. And he had a basket and he had some cardboard and he put the cardboard in the basket and he set fire to it and then we put that out with the water. I had a go at putting that out. I didn't do it, properly. It had to be done again by someone else on my team. So, you know, don't call me to rush to the fire. <laughs> you know, I failed that one. Um, but then he also put some petrol in a little pool of water. And uh, who knows when, you know, if you put a match to petrol, it really goes up, doesn't he? But a tiny little bit of petrol in there. That went up and we, we kind of doused that in uh, CO2, I think it was, and it went out. It was uh, uh, really, really good fun. And we had a, we had a good day doing this training uh, on this morning. After the training was finished, the guy delivering the training told Ian, our head of building operations, that he felt something unusual about our team. He felt that we seemed very together, and very kind to each other, and very supportive of each other. You know, because we were kind of giving each other rounds of applause when the fire went out and all that stuff. What was really noticeable to him was that we were a different kind of people. And it came across in a way that he found hard to explain. Now, uh, and apparently, he said that that's not true of all the organizations he goes and visits. Uh, he, you know, he's, some, some teams he goes and trains, they're not, apparently not as nice and not as kind and not as engaged or as interested a, a, as we were. And so that's a nice compliment for our team to receive.) Um, But Jesus followers everywhere should really be getting exactly that kind of attention from the world, in all the right ways, because we're shining brightly in that self, you know, laying down of self kind of a way. Do you you see the impact of that? Do you see how that makes a difference when you're when you're shining the light of Jesus in your world? The world looks at that and notices it. Uh, They really, really do. Now, unfortunately, what can sometimes happen is that the example we offer maybe isn't as good as it should be, uh, you know. and sometimes it's even worse than the world, and that's a real shame when that happens. So these thoughts are kind of all going around Paul's mind as he writes t- from his prison cell to the Christians uh, in Philippi. Now... I just want to ask you about uh, maybe some of the TV that you watch uh, do you watch the programs or some of the programs where there is a competitor element to it uh, so for instance there are competitors that kind of combine to try and into a big bank of people who try and win a prize um, and there's quite a few of them and I've noticed that they seem to be in kind of two kind of major camps I would suggest there are uh, the, the kind of Competitor, uh, sorry, competitor style of programmes where the contestants are against each other, and then there, on the other hand, you've got the, the kinds of programmes where they're for each other and they're working in teams. So the kinds of ones where perhaps it's a bit dog eat dog and you're treading on other people to get to the top would include maybe things like Big Brother, The Apprentice, uh, Traitors, uh, Married at First Sight, Survivor, that kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those. You don't need to admit to it publicly in church, but maybe you have. You know. Uh, uh, and, and what's going on is that these people are in these competitions and they're basically uh, in a situation where they're having to not be quite so nice they're having to be a bit ruthless or deceitful or be, or be disloyal to people they had just been working with for instance um, and as the programs progress I mean it makes for compelling viewing but it it's not it's not a very nice feeling is it and you know when someone finally gets to the end and they've maybe won the prize and you can't you know maybe on the apprentice and all the other people have been kind of pushed to one side and you kind of think oh okay well all right you've won it you know Um, but it leaves you with a slightly kind of a bitter aftertaste doesn't it and then there's the programs where it's really clear that actually the competitors are being supported and there's kind of somebody rooting for them and there's an atmosphere about the program which is designed to celebrate the victory that the people are trying to work towards Um, and programs uh, that might fall into that camp would be things like potentially like on Strictly for uh, for instance if you notice on Strictly Come Dancing, when the competitors have finished dancing, there's often a camera shot to the balcony, isn't there? And on the balcony, you can see the other competitors going, yeah, brilliant, well done, and and, and applauding them and cheering them on, because they know how hard that is and what what that person's just done. And so there's cheering on of the other competitors. Um, The the crowd, I would say, in something like the Auditorium of Britain's Got Talent, are, on the whole, very favourable and very supportive of the acts that come out. Now, if those acts are rude or self-serving, then they quite quickly get a negative vote, don't they? But if if the person comes on stage and they're vulnerable and they've got an ounce of talent, you know what? That crowd gets behind them and wants them to do well. Um, I've, I noticed that on Pointless, you know, that's on pretty much every day just before the news, isn't it? Um, when people win the prize on Pointless, there's often a cheer in the house from the, from, the, from the crowd, isn't there? Because actually they're just willing people on to do well. And there's a kind of collective spirit of, hey, we want you to do well. And so I've noticed that there's these two kinds of camps uh, or two sort of divisions within our current TV diet, if you like. And, and I would say that maybe some of the programs are designed to be about self and about kind of getting at other people and not being quite so nice and striving to get to the top by any means necessary. And it's all about your own agenda and winning at the cost of others. And then there are these other programs where it's a lot more kind of kind-hearted and supportive and team-based and people genuinely celebrate each other winning. Here in chapter two, Paul challenges the Philippians on what kind of Christians they would like to be. He says, are you going to be the kind of Christian that kind of has such a big ego that there's no room for anybody else at the table or in the debate? Is that the kind of person you're gonna be? Or are you gonna be the kind of Christian that kind of lays down your agenda a little bit and favors the interests of others and creates a sense of unity and teamwork that is very appealing to be around? Um, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those street parties that they've had at different jubilees, but I kind of quite like it if a street party has a genuine atmosphere and you know that the neighbours all get on and they shut the road and they have a tea party and they all get along. That's incredibly appealing, isn't it? You know, it's nice to live in a street where that happens. And that's not the case for everybody, is it? a really key part of how Paul encourages the Philippians, and and I've kind of danced around the kind of the big thing of Philippians so far, is that he then makes an appeal to Christ as the ultimate example of laying down self. Jesus is the person he points to that really lays self down to a very great degree. Now, the Philippians know that Paul has laid down self already in turning to Jesus uh, in his own life and ministry. Uh, and they've heard Paul uh, lift up Timothy and Epaphroditus as further examples. But then Paul goes on to make a ve- what I would call a very special mention about the person and nature of Jesus. And he describes just how much Jesus was willing to lay down self uh, in order to bring about what he was hoping to achieve. Now Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 11 in particular is called something, uh, it's called the the Christ hymn and the reason it's called that is it's got very condensed language, it's very beautifully written and what scholars think is that it was probably an early church song because the the concepts in it are very condensed down, they're they're very well thought through, they're very deep and it's likely that the early Christians sang some version of Philippians 2 verses 6 to 11. Uh, it uses some exceptional language in the, in the original Greek as well. What Paul is saying in this little section is that the ultimate and the highest example of laying down self is Jesus, uh, our King and our Lord. And what he does is he directs our gaze to Jesus so that we will then be inspired to follow in Jesus' footsteps. That's the aim of it. Uh, Now I've created a diagram for you and Eladia is going to pop that up on the screen and if you want to get a copy of this for yourselves uh, you can just scan the QR code and go to bcc.life forward slash equip me. That would be fine that this is another PDF that you can download and have on your phone and pray through and think about. I'm just going to take a few moments just to talk you through what's going on uh, on this particular uh, diagram because this diagram shows everything that is happening in Paul's description Uh, of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. So we'll start up up on the top left there and what we see is that um, I should just say as well the white text gives you the description of the theology if you like or the you know the the explanations. The yellow text is the bits of Philippians 2 that matches the theology uh, just to give you the explanation there. So up on the top left there Jesus is in glory before time. What that means is that that Jesus has always existed Jesus and the, the Father and the Holy Spirit are—they uh, they pre-exist human time. They've always been together. They've always been in community. And Jesus has been in glory before the creation of the world. That's what—that's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we we believe. And uh, so Jesus is there in glory before time. And what it says in verse six of Philippians two is that Jesus, being in very nature God, that's an affirmation that Jesus is fully God, even though. As we'll see later in the diagram, he chooses to become human for a while. Uh, he decides to come down to earth, and we'll get into that in just a second. But he is fully divine, and he exists in time before time, human time starts. And that's very important. And uh, There are a number of heresies kicking around the world today where they don't believe that. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus was pre-existed human time they think he's a created being and they're wrong about that that's not what the bible teaches and they'll come and knock on your door and try and persuade you of their beliefs and they're not right Um, So what I also want to say to you is that Jesus doesn't take the shortcut of glory to glory. And so along the top there, there's an arrow that points to a no entry sign. And that arrow suggests that it could have been a choice for Jesus uh, to go straight from pre-eternal glory to post-eternal glory. In other words, that he can just bypass human time altogether. And do you know what? He has the right to do that. He is is king in heaven just as much as God the Father is and just as much as the Holy Spirit is. He does not need to do this downward loop and come out the other side, but he chooses to do that. Now, I'm suggesting to us that there was a conversation at some point in time, uh, you know, eternal time before human time started, where Jesus said, I will volunteer to do the plan that we have discussed and that plan is this loop here this descent down to earth and to go through the cross and come out the other side but I'm, I'm also interested and in, in, in kind of fascinated by the idea that what Jesus has basically decided to do is to say um, I, could, I could do this I could leap from glory to glory I could go from this point here over to that point over there but I'm not choosing to do that. I'm choosing to lay down self because of you, because of me. And that's a pretty a big thing to do, isn't it? When you don't have to do something, but you do it for someone else, that's a very amazing thing to do. Uh, that's laying down self to a very great degree. I would also suggest that that, ch- that choice there occurs again in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays and he, I mean, you and I would pray this as well, wouldn't we, faced with a cross? Lord God, is there any way that that could be taken off me? If you had to face a crucifixion, I, th- I would put it to you that you might, or I would certainly be praying, Lord, is there any other way? Could this, could your hope for the salvation of people in the world be achieved by anything other than the cross? And there's a stony silence from heaven because the answer is no and so jesus eventually kind of says well not my will but your will not not my will lord but your will your will be done and that's laying down self again at that point in the garden of gethsemane so i see at least two opportunities for jesus to choose the easy way out and he doesn't choose the easy way out because he loves you more He loves us more. He loves the world more. This is worth it to Jesus to do this. A laying down of self that creates a value and a connection possibility between us and our Father in heaven. Uh, and so the decision is made, and we see that picked up in verses 7 and 8 there, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, and that's referring to the incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation means being made flesh, being made a human being. Uh, the Holy Spirit arrives at, Christ- at the time we celebrate at Christmas, and he um, causes the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb, and we have uh, Jesus uh, as this brand new being with the-, with the Father of God and the mother of Mary, and he, and he becomes incarnate, as we say. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 talks about Emmanuel, uh, which means God with us. And that's a prophetic statement of that right there, that Jesus is made incarnational. You know, Matthew picks that up, doesn't he, in his birth stories. He talks about... Emmanuel as the fulfilment of a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, which is 750 years before Jesus comes along, and that makes you think that there must be a spirit author deciding these things in the minds of the writers as they happen, which is a whole other sermon. Um, then Jesus leads an er- earthly life for about 30 years, and then he gets to the point where he's called to ministry and he's baptised in the, in the River Jordan, um, and that's where you get verse 7 of Philippians 2, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. When you decide to serve, you put your stuff down and you say your thing, you put your own things down and you say the other person's thing is more important. I can see that you have a need. And I'm going to put my agenda aside and I'm going to serve you instead. That's what's going on there. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself of all privilege and all status. And he allowed himself to take on the very nature of a servant. And then, of course, we get to... The lowest of the low in Jesus' experience and in all human experience, which is the crucifixion on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross for us. The cross was designed by the Romans to be the most humiliating form of death possible. In fact, even they themselves gave up on it after a while because it, it damaged the minds and hearts of those who watched it. It was viciously awful. It was the the most humiliating thing that humanity could come up with uh, to try and uh, despise and humiliate somebody. And and the the, the arrow there on the left represents the humiliation of Christ, what the theologians call the humiliation of Jesus. And And humiliation means being brought lower. So Jesus goes through the cross, and that means being put to death by being hung on a cross with nails. But God allows that because he wants a sacrifice to be made. There's a logic to this which says that if there are injustices in the world, somebody somehow needs to take it into account that there's been an injustice, and that needs to be paid for. All the wrongs of the world don't just kind of sit there undealt with. They have to be paid for by a heavenly court of some kind. And we have copies of that in the world, don't we? We have human courts that go some way to trying to establish justice. And if something wrong has been done to you, you can go to court and the judge will hopefully rule in your favour. And you'll get justice served against the person who committed the crime against you. The same is true of heaven. Heaven has a heavenly court system and and it's presided over by by the Lord Jesus and by God and by the Holy Spirit. And they assess all the crimes of humanity. But because there are so many and because we have no means of repaying that debt, and one parable describes it as being something like $6 billion worth of debt, there has to be a solution for that. And it has to be a perfect solution. And it has to be a human solution. But it's not a solution that can be manufactured or created by people. And so what, Jesus, what God does is he sends his own son. And his own son volunteers to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross to pay for all the things that you and I have ever done wrong. And so if you step into following Jesus today, or if you're already a Jesus follower, you know that absolutely everything you've ever done wrong is paid for at this point here. It's paid for by the humility of somebody who decided that you were worth paying for. And he laid down his agenda. He laid down his right to jump from glory to glory. And he came for you. He came for you and I. That's an incredible truth that's laying down self to a very very great degree and that's the that's the core of what Philippians 2 tries to teach us and then of course we get into the whole sequence of the fact that we know that crucifixion is not the end when Jesus died on the cross God came along with his power and raised him on the third day and there is resurrection power and life making Jesus alive again and by being a follower of Jesus you gain access to that resurrection power and life yourself And that means that when you decide to follow Jesus, you have a lot more energy and power and the Spirit of God on the inside of you. And it also means that you go to join Jesus in eternity. Death is not the end for you. If you've decided to follow Jesus today, then death is not the end for you. You are going into the same destination that Jesus went. And that's exciting and very, very reassuring. And I'm going to offer an opportunity at the end for anyone here who doesn't know that reality in their lives to choose it because it's so, so important that you choose uh, to receive Jesus into your heart and life because he will take you with him to be in eternity up there. That's where you're going to go with him. What also then happens with Jesus is that he then sits at God's right hand. And can you see Philippians 2 verse 9 there? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And then we get into Jesus returns again and Jesus reigns in the future and Jesus is in eternal glory forever. And that's covered for us us by Philippians 2 verses 10 to 11 that say that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In just a few verses Paul gives us incredible theology, incredible teaching. And he says, if you like, I've, I've talked to you about Timothy, I've talked to you about Epaphroditus, but if you want the best example, the platinum, platinum example, look to Jesus. He's the guy that's laid down his life to the nth degree in a way that you'll probably never be able to surpass. It's incredible stuff. I'm gonna ask the worship team just to come and join me. And I'm just gonna offer three brief reflections on this journey uh, that you can see there on the screen that that are really helpful and they're encouraging all by themselves. Number one is that it's real, It's, it's realistic. All of us know about this downslide here, don't we? We all know what it feels like to feel humiliated. We all know what it feels like to go through a setback. We all know what it feels like to go through a rough patch in our lives. And what Jesus does by coming on this path and being willing to be humiliated is he says, I identify with you. You are not alone in those feelings that you're having. I am with you in the downfall because I've been through a downfall too. So I know what it's like. You are not by yourself. And if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like you're coming down uh, into a bit of a pit, Jesus would say, I identify with you and you're not by yourself. And of course, that's real to life, isn't it? We all know this. You know, you know people who criticise the Bible and criticise Christians say, oh, you just believe airy-fairy rubbish. Well, <laughs> I beg to differ. That's pretty hard-line reality right there, isn't it? Don't you think? Now, the second thing I want to say to you is if that's... Well, actually, I also just want to add one more thing. If Jesus didn't have the perfect and trouble-free path, and he was perfect, then you and I aren't going to either, are we? And that's realism right there too, isn't it? If Jesus didn't have a perfect existence neither are you and I and so that's just a kind of a dose of reality but equally if that's really really real what does that tell us about the right hand side of the picture it tells us that that's really really real too and we can have assurance that all that stuff is true and that it's coming And that's incredibly encouraging as well. So just as this is hard-hitting, gritty reality on the left, the humiliation of Jesus, we also have the exaltation, which means lifting up of Jesus. And if we are followers of Jesus, that means we get lifted up too. We are lifted up into eternity as we follow Jesus. And so everybody here who follows Jesus, you know that you're going to be going to heaven with Jesus at the end of your life. You just know that. And for maybe one or two of you that don't know that, I would be encouraging you to pray the prayer at the end. We have the same destination as Jesus because we follow him. And the last thing I want to say that's really encouraging about this is that you don't have to go through this curve first. Guess who's been there first before you? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has stepped this path already for you. You do not have to do this for the first time. You're not having to be the pioneer of this. Jesus is the pioneer of this and he asks you to guess what? Follow him. And when you follow him, you will find that you can navigate the down and come up the other side and you will be fine. Your soul will be intact. That's really, really important to hear this morning. Would you all stand with me, BCC? We're going to get ready to worship in just a moment. But before we do that, I'm just going to give folk in the room an opportunity to pray to receive Jesus. Because it's so, so important that we do. Jesus gives us such a great example to follow. He gives us a promise of eternal life. He's realistic about hard life can, how hard life can be. But he doesn't allow us to be on our own in it if we decide to follow after him. Now I'm going to get Alide to put like a screen up on, uh, like a, a slide up on the screen, which is a prayer that you can pray. And uh, what's going to happen is, uh, I think Greg, you're going to head out the back. As I pray this prayer, Greg's going to just head down to the back, just to the back lobby there, just outside the doors. And if you pray this prayer, then you can do a couple of things. You could do both of them if you want. You can point your your phone at the screen, and uh, you can fill out a very simple little form that asks you to asks us to, you know, uh, sorry, asks you to give us your name, and your number, and your email. That would be wonderful if you did that, or if you want to, you can just go and see Greg at the end. But this prayer is important because it puts you on the map with Jesus. It makes sure of your eternal destiny. Do not leave that to chance today. Please don't do that. Let's pray this together. Let's pray this together. Just before we worship. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for everything that I've got wrong. Please forgive me for being separated from you and from other people. I believe that you died on the cross to take away my sins, that you rose again on the third day, and that you are alive and with me now. I receive you now into my life as Lord. Please lead me and help me to live for you from now on. Thank you for your gift of eternal life now and forever. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, we're not gonna ask you to come down the front or to even to raise your hand, but I would say to you, just pop out the back quietly during the worship and go and have a word with Greg because we've got some stuff for you. We would like to bless you and pray with you. You've made if you if you made that decision today, that is the most important decision you can make for your life. Unquestionably. More important than who you can marry, more important than your job, more important than the legacy you give your kids. Literally it's the most important decision that there is in the kingdom of heaven. Do I follow Jesus or not?